Ever wondered how we will produce food when we explore to Mars and beyond? Mike Dixon has spent more than 20 years doing just that. He understands that as we go further and longer into space, we won't be able to take food with us and we will have to produce it. This continues to be an important part of his research program. Welcome to the Food Focus Podcast. I'm Mike Von Massa. In this episode, I have a conversation with Mike about producing food in space and how some of that knowledge can help produce food in extreme conditions like winter in the Canadian Arctic. This kind of groundbreaking technology not only will take us further and further away from our terrestrial bounds, but also provide important contributions to producing food in areas where we have significant numbers of food insecure populations. I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. I know I did. Well, I'm here today with Mike Dixon, who is the director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility at the University of Guelph. Mike, what does that mean? Well, it's it's a program that evolved around our other acronym, which is a more pronounceable one, SALSA, <laughs> yeah, okay. Space and Advanced Life Support Agriculture. This is the University of Guelph, so yeah. it's agriculture. And uh, it's food production. What are the, the technologies required to achieve reliable life support, which is food, oxygen, water, and CO2 scrubbing. That's what plants do. But it's, it's driven by food. Food determines how far from Earth we can go and how long we can stay. So the controlled environment program here is evolved around solving the technical challenges of taking plants to the moon and Mars in, or, in that order. And and figuring out how to do it reliably and indefinitely. So clearly, in the past, space travel has just packed up enough food to try and last as long as we're going to be away. Or we can resupply it. Or we can resupply it with the space. Low Earth orbit is just a few hundred kilometers away. So. So, So what are the challenges with producing food off the surface of the Earth? The first question we asked was pressure. Yeah. Because the currency of space travel is mass and energy. The money you spend in the Canadian economy, which most people don't appreciate, but that's the, the reality. So space exploration as an economic engine is undeniably probably the most significant that we could conceive of in a country like Canada. So pressure, if you, if you need full Earth atmosphere to grow plants, if that was the answer to that question 20 years ago when we started on the hypobaric work, yeah, then literally the... Space exploration, as we can conceive of it today, is very limited to non-existent because containing full Earth atmosphere in a box Mm -hmm. and using it as a production system for you and I to have 60 or 70 square meters each for our food production is virtually impossible. The technology, you know, containing full Earth atmosphere on the vacuum of the moon or the almost vacuum of Mars, which 0.6 kilopascals, oh, call it a vacuum, that pressure gradient requires a mass for your greenhouse that is prohibitive. Yeah. You need structural containment that is immense. So we said, well, you know, if you can take the pressure down and get into the zone of conventional inflatable systems, low mass inflatable structures, then we can start to consider the mass cost of life support to be come into the zone of reality. So luckily, Plants can handle down to one-tenth of Earth's atmosphere with impunity. Really? Yeah. As long as... So a tenth of Earth's atmosphere, which is roughly 100 kilopascals total, 21 oxygen, 78 nitrogen, yeah. 
little squirts of everything else, including CO2. If you take it down to 10, one-tenth of Earth's atmosphere, you have to have at least seven of those 10 kilopascals comprised of oxygen. Yeah. Oxygen's the main limiting variable. Okay. So oxygen, then 0.1 is carbon dioxide. That's roughly 1,000 parts per million. So that amount of partial pressure of carbon dioxide is more than adequate for photosynthesis, given enough light energy. And you need water vapor. That's the other ingredient. So oxygen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor are the three atmosphere components that are absolutely required for plant production. And at a tenth of Earth's atmosphere with 7, 7 kPa of oxygen, 0.1 of CO2, and 1.2 or 3 or 4 of, of uh, water vapor, and maybe a little bit of argon or nitrogen as, as a buffer, and you're good. And you're good. And plants do fine. They perform almost like they're in your backyard. Really? They acclimate to that environmental condition, and they're not the best. You know, it's not optimal. Yeah. But they will definitely do their job as a life support machine. They'll yeah. give you enough edible biomass, scrub your CO2, deliver oxygen, and, and recycle fresh water. So are those systems hydroponic systems, or yes. do you have... Typically, yeah, yes, typically, typically hydroponic. So you're not looking at some sort of organic soil matter up there as no, well or traveling with we're, that. We're not expecting that to yeah. be the case. So you start out with uh, with a hydroponic recycling system. You need the sensor technology to reliably do that. Yeah. You go to space, you can't throw anything away. Yeah. No such thing as waste. So we must figure out how to recycle everything, all the carbon, oxygen, water, nitrogen. Yeah. And doesn't that sound familiar to terrestrial agri-food sectors that are yeah. currently being legislated into yeah. recycling and not spoiling the earth with their nitrate and phosphorus and all yeah. that crap. So those are tech transfer elements that have served the program very well in the context of advancing the technology to go to space, but spreading it around on so, earth. So with some real on-earth applications Absolutely. as well. And, I, and I'm going to get to those in a minute. I'm, I'm intrigued. You said 60 square meters, roughly, to, to generate enough. And, and that's why we're not seeing a greenhouse tacked onto the outside of the International Space Center. It, this, this has to be planted somewhere. Yeah, and the, the space station, as I said, the space station is, uh, you know, three or 400 kilometers away. Yeah. That's, that's just over there. That's yeah. closer than Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> so we can resupply it. Yeah. And the other technical challenge of the space station, or low Earth orbit, is microgravity. Uh, microgravity is a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it creates such a significant technical challenge in gas exchange, in water recirculating, in wa water management, irrigation management, because you can't have this stuff floating around. And it, you know, it confounds the, the, the rest of the technology in your spaceship. But luckily, we don't need biological life support alternatives in low Earth orbit because yeah. it's just there. It's just and there we can yeah. resupply it from Kazakhstan or Florida forever yeah. and, and, and at a reasonable cost of mass and energy. Yeah. Uh, even the moon is only three days away. Yeah. And, and so we, you know, we could conceivably and safely support an exploration mission on the moon uh, without having to have an extensive biological system to, you know, to give us our food and scrub our CO2 and all that stuff. It behooves us to start to develop those technologies on the moon where it is a little safer. Yeah. And, you know, break stuff. 
over yeah. the next decade or two or three. And the low gravity on, say, the moon is well, sufficient. It, it's to... it's still there's still an up and a down. Yeah, and that's all you need. Yeah, okay. and now to be decided, of course, there may be some environmental challenges that that come with that different gravity. But in all of the work that I've ever done with plants under weird environment conditions, yeah. I've discovered that, and I've discovered, I mean, this is reasonably common knowledge yeah. in the plant physiology community, that plants come armed with the genetic capability to acclimate to virtually an order of magnitude variation in almost every environment variable except temperature. Wow. So, okay. so they're pretty tough. I mean, I, I just explained that we can reduce atmospheric pressure by an order of magnitude. And they say, well, that's okay. We can handle that. So uh, plants will acclimate yeah. over a pretty broad range of... Much per- better than we will. Oh, absolutely. So, 10, 10 kPa, by the way, is not a shirt sleeve environment for you and me. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I understand. So if you and I were going to Mars, what would we be eating? Well, if you're going to spend a long time on Mars, let's fast forward to that time yeah. when we have food production, inflatable structures, radiation protection as required because that's to be determined. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen between now and then. But let's fast forward, you know, a few decades to uh, substantial life support on on Mars. It will be a nutritious, Mm -hmm. balanced, psychologically appealing vegetarian diet. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, and and we can conceive of that. I mean, I can write that down right now. Yeah. In fact, we wrote a paper, it must be 15 years ago now, uh, in collaboration with some nutritionists, uh, nutritionists from uh, Cornell. And we took a crew of eight, developed a menu cycle of 10 days, indefinite, and said, okay, we need, here's the menu cycle. Here's the portions of each individual vegetarian component of the menu. Yeah. Three meals a day. 10-day cycle, and then yeah. you re- repeat it. So that was the structure we put on it. Mm-hmm. And then you need this many beans, peas, corn, soy, yeah. wheat for bread, et cetera, et cetera. You need all this plant so, material. So, you, so it is sort of a, a diverse... Yeah. You need, a, you need a, you know, there's about 40 different plant species that yeah. comprise that 10-day menu cycle. And that's where we learned that you needed, and this is about 15 years ago, uh, about 73, I think, was our conclusion. 73 square meters of plant production yeah. area for each individual crew member to indefinitely and reliably supply them with all the food they need. That's 100% of their life support requirements. Yeah. Of course, they're vegetarians. And and so we've been trying to push that number down. That's the mass and energy number. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, was, that was the genesis of my question, really, was are there plants that yield better nutrition mass per square meter and or yeah. do better in those environments. And, 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 and those and, bits and pieces of the candidate crops, yeah. those evaluations of the different yeah. candidate crops, and maybe the manipulations of their genome that yeah. create uh, the desirable traits that we want to exploit in space, yeah. that will happen. That's a lot of science and tech development over the next, you know, yeah. concurrently with the hardware requirements to actually get to Mars in a yeah. reasonable time and, and get back. So, sure, that exists. But, you know, back when we first started doing this work, the number was 73 square meters. I think it's closer to 60 now because we've made progress on pushing that number. That number represents the mass and energy costs of your life support system. So, you know, it takes less energy to grow that much food. We, we, We worked with another company at one time on developing a genetically modified 
plant that had what we called the green gene. And uh, the green gene was to enhance the photosynthetic efficiency of this plant material, whatever it was, tomatoes, whatever, by making it more efficient at lower light levels, hence reducing the energy cost, right? It failed. We didn't get very far with that. We fumbled along for a couple of years and and eventually passed on it, or for whatever reason, ran out of money, obviously. Yeah. So... uh, but you're right. You know, there are all kinds of little homework assignments that will make up the science and technology advancements in human space exploration and life support requirements over the decades. Yeah. And uh, the technologies and the sensors and the environment control recipes, the waste management, you can't throw anything away. There's no such thing as waste. So you've got to be able to take all the inedible biomass yeah. and recycle it in a, in a time constant that fits with your what life do you, support. What do you... You know, you you talked about tomatoes. What do you do with that tomato plant at the end of its life? What right. Do you, we have to think about Good those questions. Yeah, those are, those are the, the those. You know are... where we're developing a lot of these rules of engagement and terms? We're working with cannabis. Yeah. It's the same problem. And uh, we're, we're, you know, exploiting at this point the cannabis sector yeah. because they can afford they're, the they're technology. Yeah. yeah. So they absolutely certainly need what we've developed for the space program where we have a we're trying to develop a a stable and predictable and standardized profile of nutritious compounds in the plants that we're growing so that we can predict their life support contribution to exploration initiatives and in the phytopharmaceutical industry sector not just cannabis but all plant-made medicine you want to be able to predictably standardize the profile of medical compounds. Yes. And that's the challenge that in today's flurry of activity in the cannabis sector as the charging component of the phytopharmaceutical industry in, in Canada at the moment. That's what holds them back from raising cannabis up to the lofty status of a conventional pharmaceutical commodity. Mm-hmm. You can't Predi- sta- predictable he, levels yeah, of activity. That you know so that so that a physician when he offers a prescription to a patient for some ailment, Mm -hmm. epileptic seizures, glaucoma, Mm -hmm. cancer pain, whatever, that they have not only the strain, the genetics, that have those uh, attributes that Mm -hmm. have demonstrated efficacy in that particular ailment, but you can take those genetics and turn them on their ear by messing with the environment. Mm -hmm. Just changing the color of the light Mm -hmm. has a profound effect on the... uh, secondary metabolites of which cannabinoids and terpenes are yeah so excellent segue i've got two questions left about space the first one was light Mm. are we artificially lighting and to maximize growth or are we doing taking night and day on mars as well or some combination of the two I, i guess it would be a combination of the two the problem on mars is that even though the day length yeah. It's almost exactly the same as it is here on Earth. It's about, yeah. I think, 37 minutes yeah. longer on, on Mars, a Martian day. The solar constant is about, I don't know, 30% less yeah. than it is here on Earth. I can't remember exactly what the numbers yeah. are, but it's significantly less, but not so so much so that it would confound photosynthetic efficiency. You're still yeah. well within saturation levels for most plants. But that free energy comes with some risk in galactic solar radiation. Yeah. So there, that radiation challenge is something that we're 
we don't know enough about yet. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I want to put a plant on the surface of the moon. Yeah. I want to put a plant on the surface of Mars. Say, how do you like the radiation environment? Do I have to do something extraordinary to protect your genetic complement ah, from, okay, yeah, from yeah. the bombarding of galactic particles? So it may be we have to completely darken and yeah. then and then light which increases the energy intensity required well the, the but, energy requirements if you're going to artificially light which is how we're doing a lot of uh, indoor agriculture yeah. here in canada now the source of the electrical energy is conventionally high pressure sodium metal halite high, high density discharge lighting but uh, leds have, have definitely taken that and and are slowly but surely Moving those aside, those and, technologies, and as aside. you said, changing the time of light, the frequency of light, all of those things can affect plant performance they're, and they're, nutritional content of the. Oh, absolutely! They they have profound the, the environment conditions in all of yeah. its complexity: light, quality, and quantity, CO two, temperature, humidity, nutrients, and yeah. water. That's I mean that's farming, right? Yeah, that is, yeah, you yeah. Take you take and and homogenize those environment variables as best you can. And that's what farmers try to do. And when you have a controlled environment, tightly contained environment, uh, you have the technical advantage of, of being able to do that a little better than if you're exposed to, you know, the wind and rain and sun yeah. of outdoor agriculture. So we exploit that opportunity as best we can and try and do it with enough foresight on the, the environment conditions that yield good production levels of edible biomass mm -hmm. and nutritious and and uh, you know appropriate yeah. levels of secondary metabolites that comprise the nutrition that comes from the plants we're growing so to switch gears a little bit and move away from space and come back to land you did allude earlier to some of the benefits that come out of this kind of research and sort of i have two directions i'd like to take that the first is Sort of we're hearing more about, you know, vertical farming, urban farming. And my guess is that a lot of the things that you're learning in your lab are applicable to these types of technologies. Is Absolutely. Yeah, the, the stuff that we've been doing here for 25 years now in very tightly contained, high-fidelity environment control to yield predictable nutritional composition of food for life support is instantly applicable to the phytopharmaceutical industry sector where a standardized profile of medical compounds is the goal. That's mm -hmm. the holy grail of medical cannabis. Yeah. And, well, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so the technologies that we deploy down the hall here in the Controlled Environment Systems Facility is exactly how the phytopharmaceutical industry sector must address the standardization of plant-made medicines. And uh, it's a bit of a challenge in the industry today because... They have charged ahead with the legalization of cannabis, yeah. but it's not just cannabis. We work with a number, you know, we're growing cancer drugs and yeah. tobacco plants just for the sheer irony of it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, the cannabis industry sector has charged ahead with, uh, you know, genetics, strain selection and protecting the IP on strains and building greenhouses and investing millions and millions, tens of millions into production infrastructure. And unfortunately... I'm going to say that you can't grow medical cannabis in a field or a greenhouse or any production infrastructure that does not give you complete and utter control over high-fidelity environment variables. All those six and a half that I listed. Mm -hmm. you have to. That's the only way that you can predictably 
standardize the profile of medical compounds mm -hmm. so that the physician, when he takes product X and, de and delivers it to patient Y today, it's the same X for mm -hmm. that Y tomorrow and the day after. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. One of the, the I had an earlier discussion with someone on cannabis legalization, mm -hmm. and particularly in the context of edibles, because my, my focus is, is food. But even in the recreational realm, consistency Absolutely. is going to be... To and the be, market will settle out those yeah. those uh, competitive factors and, yeah. and consistency. You're absolutely right. It's cannabis is going to be no different than any other commodity, whether yeah. it's well, it doesn't matter. Anything yeah. that we consume that has uh, whatever, and, and even if it's not, you know, even if it's not phytopharmaceutical. If I'm say a restaurant or or someone in in a large urban center who's going to try sort of producing in a small scale unit. Even large scale, I want consistency in absolutely taste, flavor, look, and and all of those factors. Yeah. As I get better at controlling those six things, much easier to do in an enclosed space than it is in an open field in Leamington. If we're talking uh, tomatoes, I mean, it still has its challenges, but yes, yeah. it's definitely uh, an approach that has to be addressed in that fashion. So, so the last question, and and I heard you speak at a, a I heard you ask a question at a at a meeting that you and I were both at. And it really occurred to me that this technology, one of the things we hear a lot about are remote communities, particularly in Canada, remote northern communities, and the high cost of getting healthy food to them. While there aren't pressure or gravity issues, there are very many of the and, and extreme, environment. extreme environments and, yeah. you know, low daylight, zero daylight, depending on how far north you are. Yeah. It seems to me this technology probably has direct and current application in Certainly. Those. It's been a point of rationale in virtually every federal and provincial grant proposal that I've written in controlled environment agriculture for the last 30 years. I've always justified an element of the storyline for developing this technology or, or whatever to applications in Canada's north where food security is a profound issue. Yeah. In harsh environments all over the world. Uh, the world, food security raises itself up yeah. as an issue. It's it's an economic one in Canada, in the deserts of the Middle East. It's it's a highly charged political yes issue uh, because uh, you know they have literally money to burn. Yeah. So uh, uh, under those conditions, uh, notwithstanding that, I mean there there are still those in the Middle East, and we have uh, research collaboration agreements with the, the government of Kuwait. The people there who understand what's happening and see the darkness at the end of the tunnel of oil, appreciate that you know they must achieve some level of food security in the interim while they can afford it yeah. and, and beat up the technology, break it, and make it work in the deserts, yeah. just as we have to in a snowbank in the north. Are we closer to being able to do that? We on, can do that immediately. We can, we can do that now. We have the technology, as they say. Yeah. <clears throat> We've demonstrated it. We've prototyped it. Kuwait is pilot scaling it this year yeah. in 2019. They're, they're ahead of us now in deploying Canadian technology for harsh environment food production than we are. We should be doing it in a snowbank in Yellowknife right now, and we're not. Might be a political question. Why aren't we? Just... Well, nobody in Canada wanted to pay for it. Yeah, that's yet. okay. Yeah. We're, we're not we're not desperate enough. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why. You know, it's not for lack of trying. I mean, yeah. we've 
It's a long story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I can appreciate it. It's, 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 it's always a challenge. So in the northern environment, you don't have the atmospheric issues. You can circulate air. I mean, you don't have the same sort of waste pressure, but you'd like to be able to deal with it. You could compost, and, and it's, but, it's but you'd like to, to deal with all of those issues. What is the biggest constraint? Energy. Energy. If you're going to have to use diesel-powered generators to grow your tomatoes, continue to import them from Mexico because it's just not an economically sensible approach. However, having said that, currently we spend tens and tens of millions of dollars as taxpayers in the South air freighting perishable products Uh to our cousins in the North. So that services the... Well, a bit of the transportation sector, but it services the horticultural community in Mexico. Yeah. And they're fine. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Within reason. But it's, it has to stop because we have the technology. We did a feasibility assessment, both technical and economic feasibility assessment in collaboration with the Aurora Research Institute in, mm-hmm. in Fort Smith. And the government of the Northwest yeah. Territories was involved and the Arctic Energy Alliance because mm-hmm. energy is the key. Mm-hmm. And... My, I guess, simplistic, from my biased perspective, yeah. my simplistic approach is, listen, we can put an industry on the ground in a snowbank in the north. Yeah. And it will be a horticultural industry. It will be a relatively high-tech one, so it needs some training. Hey, we're a university. That's yeah. what we do. So you need to train that cohort yeah. uh, of uh, entrepreneurs who will, who will exploit that. And it will require some form of subsidy. The infrastructure grant, you know, from the feds, for example, to get the thing started, get the scale appropriate to do some pilot scale work research. And then uh, a sweetheart deal on energy from a hydro operation. And I know that there are hydro operations in the Northwest Territories that currently spill an excess of energy over the dam uh, because they don't have a a customer at the moment. The mining industry didn't develop in the to the scale that they expected, so there's there's some excess energy. So there. so so the energy is probably doable too. It's I'm doable, by... but it's still you know we're currently subsidizing air freight from Mexico. Yeah, we're probably going to have to subsidize a little energy. bit of infrastructure and energy at least for about ten years to get it, to get it figured out. And and so your subsidy is still you know the federal government is still going to have to help. It's going to have to shoulder this agenda along in mm-hmm. the north. It's not just going to happen on the backs of some big risk takers and in, in horticultural entrepreneurs. It's yeah. just not. Many, many attempts have been made yeah. and they all fall apart when the federal money runs out. Yeah. So there's going to have to be a, a strategic plan of supporting the development of that horticultural industry sector in, mm-hmm. this, in the snowbanks of the north. Mm-hmm. And subsidizing it and shouldering it along for a, at least a ten-year period, yeah. but I submit that the subsidy runs around in the economy of the Northwest Territories in the case that we study, yeah. not in Mexico. Yeah. So it seems like a, an intuitive no-brainer, but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. No. And the extent to which we can make the appropriate political networking connections, and because I've told this story over the last twenty years. Hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And somebody sits there or an audience sits in front of me and nods vigorously in the intuitively obvious conclusions that are being drawn here. But I must be missing something. Yeah. I, something's, something's too hard here. Yeah. So, so 
my last question then is, as you, you talked about hydro and some of these remote communities aren't even served. No, they're all, they're, they're diesel all diesel generators. generators. Yeah. And as a kid who grew up in a nuclear research town, yeah. I'm always interested in the, you know, we're hearing more about these small modular reactors as a potential energy source, particularly up north where we can't, where, where unless, we, unless our storage capacity gets much, much better. I'd be wary of that right now because yeah. I, I don't think any of us have the technical sort of competence isn't the right mm. word, but you know we're, we're just not sure enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the, this point, so th- there's lots of that other, technology isn't there. I yet, mean, yeah. there's there's geothermal, there's solar, there's yeah. wind, there's alternative energy source, and there's no one of them. Yeah, and and the biomass energy. So all four of those can work yeah. in the north, and. It, you, it's going to take the concert of all four of them. You wouldn't rely on any one, certainly not solar. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. So you wouldn't rely on any single one. You have to have a smorgasbord of alternative yeah. energy resources to support your system and a diesel generator to back it to all back up. To back it all up. And then some sweetheart deals on hydro. But you want to then localize the production facility mm-hmm. in, in a place where you can redistribute it to the smaller communities, one of the big... Uh, so, so that's a that's a good question, and I'm conscious of time, and I think you, you've got somewhere to go as well. Are there economies of scale in this? Yeah, absolutely. So so it's not like every town is going to have its own little no, production facility. And unfortunately, it's, it's likely we're going to have a production facility yes. and, and then move stuff, but just not move it as far as we've moved it historically. Right, and, and that will be an element of the local economy as well. Yeah, uh, the distribution system and, and the logistics of dealing with that. I mean, it was a, it was an, an element of disappointment among in some of the workshops that we had in our communication phase in this program called Ag North. Yeah, the, the, the report is online on the yeah. Aurora Research Institute website. So, you know, we gathered some of the First Nations groups and and municipalities, and there was this perception that everybody would get their little garden in a box yeah and and you know depending on the scale of the community 200 a thousand whatever yeah can't do that okay that was that was my perception coming in that's what there's the genesis of my question yeah and and there's a lot of perceptions that that maybe you know that that's the the way the solution will evolve it won't because that requires that you have the capacity in every little community to support the technology yeah. You know, somebody's got to know where the on switch is for yeah. all this stuff to maintain the horticultural management, the computer automated sensor feedback control, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole science and technology to learning curve to yeah. be foisted on the operation. And yeah. you can't have that pockmarked all over someplace like the Northwest Territories yeah. with less than 50,000 people as the total population. Yeah. So it, it, so every community of, of 100 or 200 isn't going to have the never, expertise never, required. Never, never happen. You know, it, okay, I shouldn't say that. But no, it, there, it, there, it, may it, be, there may be, you know, an isolated pocket of expertise that sprouts right. out of a small community and then right. an entrepreneurial element takes over and they, and they borrow on the technology yeah. that's evolved from a more central site and a larger scale site that has the diversity of commodities and uh, because you can have it at such a scale you know you daisy chain all these yeah. modular systems together and that's what they're designed to do yeah uh, daisy chain them all together until you have the capacity to supply all of the strawberries that they need 
yeah. all of the tomatoes and all of the perishable produce that we conventionally fly in from yeah. Mexico. And maybe the answer isn't there yet. It's, it's, it's more of a capacity constraint, like a, a human capacity constraint, yes. than it is a constraint moment, you need to be big enough to make it economically feasible. Are there, are there both economies of those, both of those? So there are economies of, of scale. It gets cheaper yeah. as, you, as you get bigger. Exactly. And, yeah. and more efficient and logistically more yeah. sensible and, and energetically. You've got to locate it somewhere where you can get that cheap energy. So in the short term, I'm not going to put a pot in my backyard to, yeah. to feed myself through the winter and give me protection from the... Go down to Leamington and buy your veggies on the roadside stands outside of every greenhouse. That's yeah. <laughs> with the ones that are left that aren't converted to cannabis. Yeah. Good. Well, Mike, that was, uh, that was really cool. And I'm looking forward to reading more. And uh, hopefully we can have a conversation again. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, Mike. We wrap up another episode of Food Focus. I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.